Thank you all for joining us, yes. um, especially to uh, Tony for visiting us from snowy Chicago. Mm-hmm. Not that <laughs> snowy, but <laughs> snow flurries. Ah, well, still a lot colder than San Diego. Yes, for sure. Uh, today we will be discussing um, her book, The Long Deep Grudge. And I'm going to read a little bit about her book and cover some housekeeping before we um, do the deep dive with Tony. So um, this is a story of big capital, radical labor and class war in the American heartland. Um, The Long Deep Grudge was the 2020 book of the year from the International Labor History Association and had an honorable mention for the Philip Taft Labor History Prize. This rich history details the bitter, deep-rooted conflict between industrial behemoth, international harvester, and the uniquely radical Farm Equipment Workers Union. The long deep grudge makes clear that class warfare has been and remains integral to the American experience, providing up-close and personal and long-view perspectives from both sides of the battle lines. So, I will stop there because I know you have much more to elaborate on, Tony. Um, But I do want to double check that everybody is muted. If you are not muted, I will mute you. And that is a credible librarian threat to everyone. (laughs) Um, You don't know how often I don't get to shush people. We just let people talk in our libraries, which is great and makes for lively um, libraries. only very few times do I get to like really exercise these fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, but as um, the presentation goes on, if you could type your questions in the chat and we'll get to them at the end for the Q&A session, um, either Avery or myself will bring it to the discussion. And then other than that, go ahead and take it away, Tony. Okay, great. And um, thanks, Leslie. Thanks, Avery, for having me. I'm just, you know, so um, pleased to be here. And really, um, obviously, a lot of you are taking time away from many other things that are um, going on and important. So I appreciate that you're here to listen to me talk for a little bit about um, my book. And I was, I think some of you might have joined the call while I was talking about this. I mean, it occurred to me um, just a little bit ago that, Last May, um, it last oh, a little over a year ago, at the end of May, I was I was asked to speak about my book to an AFSCME group in Minneapolis, and that had been scheduled for a month or so. Um, a friend of mine who is the president of the local up there, and um, it, that the talk that I was scheduled scheduled to give happened just a few days after. George Floyd was killed. Um, and I ended up giving the talk. I wasn't sure if they would want me to because things were in such turmoil in Minneapolis and it was so fraught and people were so um, uh, you know, upset and people were protesting. And um, so a lot of what I spoke about then connected to that. And it occurred to me just that it's, I don't know, um, some sort of irony that I'm speaking to you to a different union group the night um, that the verdict was announced, um, thankfully guilty on all counts. Um, So um, in the George Floyd murder trial or the police officer who who is guilty. So 
So at any rate, there's kind of a thread that connects those. And I'm actually going to be talking about, um, are you going to hear me reference the police and violence and labor activity in ways that I think have some connection um, to that. But I'm also, you know, I'm going to be talking about labor history. And I think all of you as um, union activists also were focused on something else that just took place. And that was the union's defeat at um, Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama facility. And lots of people in various outlets and social media have weighed in about the implications of that loss for labor organizing in the present and the future. And um, I'd argue though that, um, that one of the ways or one of the more important ways we can make sense of what happened with Amazon and figure out how to do better in the future is to consider how unions scored victories and why they suffered defeats in the past. And I deal with both the triumphs and setbacks for labor in the past in my book. And I'm gonna talk um, in, in some detail about that in a moment. But obviously we have so much that's pressing going on at the moment um, with the George Floyd case and with Black Lives Matter and with the Amazon vote that sometimes I think labor historians need to explain more generally, especially for working people, for the oppressed, for those most besieged by our current round of crises um, to explain just why it is that history matters. And I think offering up that cliche that those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it isn't sufficient. Um, and in fact, because in fact, it, for working people, I think there's actually a lot in the past that would be valuable to repeat, but those truths have largely been erased from the versions of history favorable to elites and perpetuated by the institutions um, they've created. Uh, early labor historian Selig Perlman writing in the 1920s described capitalism as not simply an economic and political arrangement where one class owns the means of production, it is also a social organization presided over by a class with an effective will to power. And so I'm gonna put up my slides now just so you don't have to keep looking at me the whole time. Alrighty. Uh, and so essential to that will to power that Perlman was talking about is control over the historical narrative. So this kind of telling of history that ensures that what's defined as progress equates with a society that is controlled by and catering to the 1% such that it becomes uh, difficult to imagine that any other reality is or ever has been possible. For capitalism to thrive, it must erase traditions, undermine communities, and obliterate the people's history. That's because progress for working people has been achieved not by individualism and self-interest. Material conditions have improved not because of employer generosity or charity from on high. Rather, things have gotten better when workers through solidarity and communal effort have effectively asserted their own will to power. And I suspect that you all in your union um, understand that. Truly understanding history then is for working people in itself an act of defiance and resistance 
and is also integral to the essential task of organizing for a more equitable future. So I'm arguing that reading labor history is important, especially in challenging times. And, you know, of course, I, it would be fine with me if you um, want to start with my book. And the quick description um, and one that Leslie um, alluded to of this book would be that it's about a smallish, long defunct union, the farm equipment workers known as FE, and its dealings with a company that went out of business decades ago. But that doesn't really you know, get people that interested. <laughs> so I think it piques um, interest a little bit better if I read from the book's introduction entitled Undried Blood on the Pavement. So I'm just gonna read a little bit and then get back to um, the slides, etc. A black man murdered in the pre-dawn darkness on a south side street. In 1952 Chicago, the rule was that such an event didn't matter much, not downtown anyhow. Reporters wouldn't be dispatched to cover it. The police would take their time investigating it and in corporate suites, the death would have passed without notice. But this particular killing got plenty of attention. The victim was 52-year-old William Foster, an employee in the malleable iron foundry at the sprawling McCormick Works complex, the cradle of corporate behemoth, International Harvester. He'd been a few blocks from his home, heading to work on a mild October morning, when he met up with someone who struck him on the head and fractured his skull. Foster died a short time later without identifying who had attacked him. He left behind a wife and two children. No witnesses came forward, at least not right away. The police, the press, and executives at International Harvester, however, were immediately certain where the guilty party could be found. Captain George Barnes, head of the Chicago Police Department's notorious labor detail, had no doubt about the motive for the assault. This was obviously a labor slugging, he promptly declared, because the Farm Equipment Workers Union was in the midst of a bitter strike against International Harvester and Foster had chosen to cross the FE's picket lines. Within hours of Foster's death, International Harvester offered a $10,000 reward for the arrest of his assailant. This company will make every effort to safeguard every employee who comes to work. This crime must not go unpunished said Harvester President John McCaffrey in a statement publicized across the country. Then the Chicago Tribune weighed in. There is good reason to believe that the Foster murder was communist inspired. The union at the particular Harvester plant where he was employed is the Farm Equipment Workers Union, which was kicked out of the CIO because it is controlled by communists. So that's the opening. You're gonna to have to read the book. I encourage you to do that um, all the way to the end of it if you wanna find out um, what happens with that um, incident. Uh, the, this, my story goes um, back in time and then returns to that big violent strike and what just what happened as a result of that killing toward the end. In between, the book details the story of International Harvester which was one of America's founding industrial empires and once the fourth largest corporation in the world, 
with a reputation for anti-union animus that stretched back to the 19th century and that went on in the 20th century to pioneer sophisticated union avoidance tactics that remain standard business practice today. And everything that happened at Amazon, uh, International Harvester um, was using well back in the early 20th century and then some. And the book also details how the FE, which, which was from its founding in the 1930s, connected to the Communist Party, managed to organize the uber-powerful Harvester Corporation and built an exceptionally militant, solidified, and effective union. But how is it that I came to tell this particular story? I talk about that in the preface to my book. As it turns out, this is a little bit of a family as well as a labor history. When I was growing up in Chicago in the 1960s and 70s, my father was an official with the United Auto Workers back when the UAW was just about at the height with nearly a million and a half members. Um, so that's the world that I remember. So this is in 1973, I think. Um, that's a march in downtown Chicago. Uh, kind of interesting that all of the things that people were marching for back then. Um, this is a UAW-led march. Um, pretty much we still need, except for possibly ending inflation. That may be the only thing not on the social justice agenda. And the man over there on the um, edge of the photo in the tie, that's my dad. And then in the little inset, um, the little arrow pointing to some to that 13-ish uh, year old girl, that was me um, in, the, in the march further back. So that's, this is the way I spent my um, childhood and it was um, mostly connected to the UAW. I didn't know um, anything about this other union and my father didn't talk about it a lot. I knew he'd been a member of the Communist Party earlier in his life and I was also dimly aware that he'd been in the leadership of the union that first organized many of the agricultural implement plants in the Midwest, the FE, which had been absorbed by the UAW in 1955. So I, I also knew that my dad held the FE in high regard, though since it had ceased to exist before I was born, I never really um, asked him much about it. My father died in 1979 while I was in college. And shortly after that, that's when I decided to start poking into the FE's history. What I discovered proved important enough, I thought, to propel me to go to graduate school and write a dissertation about the FE, which really had had very little, um, if anything, written about it before that. But I put that aside once I finished grad school and I didn't pursue an academic career. I moved back to Chicago. I did various kinds of teaching and political work and raised two daughters. But back in about 2012, as union membership figures continued to plummet and the labor movement grew ever weaker, even with a democratic administration in Washington, I began to think again about what I'd learned earlier about the FE. The cooperative ethos that increasingly defined the labor movement after World War II had been vociferously challenged by the FE. The philosophy of our union, one FE official said, is that management has no right to exist. And it seemed to me that the FE's alternative ideology would be relevant to those trying to figure out how to revitalize and redirect union organizing today. And I should note that, again, when I first 
sort of started to revisit this history. This was well before the Bernie Sanders campaign and before the kind of um, uh, rebirth of activism that we've seen lately. We were pretty much in a pretty um, uh, uh, stultified period in terms of um, labor activism and social activism. So I, I really did think maybe there was something to um, return to that might be useful for folks to know. Um, I wanted though, when I wrote this book to make it very different from an academic um, type of publication. So I wanted to tell a story that would engage readers of all kinds. I included a lot of individual stories, some of, some of about my father, but also about other union leaders, rank and filers, corporate titans, and others who factor into the story like politicians and jazz musicians and civil rights crusaders and so on. And through this story of this conflict between International Harvester and the FE, I wanted to show how the fights we're engaged in today, like Amazon, connect to battles that were waged a long time back. And in light of what I said at the outside of this talk, I sought to underscore how obscuring those past victories and just how they came about serves to undermine working class power in the present. I believe also that I can make the case that there's no better example of that deep rooted struggle in American history at any rate than in this bitter battle between this particular company and this union. That's because the origins of this grudge match can be traced far back. During the massive nationwide general strike for the eight hour day that began on May 1st, 1886, and May Day will soon be upon us again, police violence outside McCormick Works in Chicago, the very same plant that was in the excerpt I read from my book's introduction, prompted a demonstration a few days later in Haymarket Square. Young Cyrus McCormick II proved instrumental in ensuring that a group of anarchist labor activists were arrested and hung for the bombing that took place there last that night, though to this day, no one knows who was really responsible for it. This proved a catastrophe for the American labor movement as in the national crackdown following what came to be called the Haymarket Riot, the eight hour day movement collapsed, unions were decimated and radical workers movements were utterly destroyed. Nonetheless, anarchist leader August Spies at his trial vowed, if you think that by hanging us, you can stamp out the labor movement, then hang us. Here you will tread upon a spark, but there and there and behind you and in front of you and everywhere flames blaze up. It is a subterranean fire. You cannot put it out. The ground is on fire upon which you stand. Indeed, the title of my book is a reference to the legacy of Haymarket as the Chicago author Nelson Algren wrote in 1951 of the dark grudge cast by the four standing at the gallows head for the hope of the eight hour day and of the long deep grudge born for McCormick the Reaper. The McCormick name was and still is ubiquitous in Chicago and by the early 20th century, their business had morphed into the International Harvester Corporation. 
since IH, as it was sometimes called, has been out of business for some time, I want to emphasize that it was one of the preeminent businesses in the world, employing hundreds of thousands in factories, mines, and mills across the globe. The heart of their far-flung enterprise remained in the Midwest, including the Mammoth, McCormick, and Tractor Works complex located on Chicago's near west side. When the Great Depression hit and a new upsurge in organizing the industrial unionism of the CIO challenged America's corporate giants, it's a notable but little known fact that International Harvester held out longest against that tide. By this point, Harvester had moved beyond simple repression to embrace more sophisticated forms of union avoidance as the company became a leader in what was dubbed welfare capitalism, introducing a host of programs that were designed as much to control as they were to reward. Harvester also created the first corporate industrial relations department, and as part of that had introduced company unions to all of its plants way back in 1919. Coal miner and CIO founder John L. Lewis called organizing International Harvester the hardest job I know of, and he knew a little bit about taking on tough opponents. Though the FE gained recognition at Tractor Works in 1938, and this is, you know, since again, we've been talking about Amazon and um, National Labor Relations Board's elections, um, this is one of, you know, the first generation of those elections. This took place back in 1938. So, one of the things I really like about this photo is how serious um, everybody involved um, here is, is taking this enterprise. Um, and here's another photo from that early unionization drive at Tractor Works um, that uh, makes references to Haymarket and to um, the McCormick family. But even though um, the FE gained recognition at that one plant, Tractor Works in 1938, it took until mid-1941, so after U.S. Steel, Republic Steel, General Motors, General Electric, and even the notoriously anti-union Ford Motor Company, for Fowler McCormick, grandson of both Cyrus McCormick I and John D. Rockefeller, to sign a multi-plant contract with a CIO union, the FE. So it took over half a century for those subterranean embers to really catch fire for the workers at International Harvester. So organizing, whether you're doing this at corporations like International Harvester and General Motors and Ford back in uh, the 1930s or at Amazon today can be a long process. And as I emphasize in my book, the FE's example makes clear that the CIO upsurge of the 1930s was not as spontaneous as it sometimes is represented. The union breakthrough at Harvester was the culmination of a slow but steady organizing campaign stretching decades back. And once the FE gained recognition, union fervor at Harvester would burn quite intensely. It was at least a bit ironic then that famously anti-union IH ended up obliged to deal with the FE, an organization led by Communist Party-associated radicals who were dedicated to keeping harvester workers as agitated as possible. 
Such a perspective stood in sharp contrast to the trade union ideology embraced by the non-communist labor establishment following World War II. Walter Ruther, who became president of the UAW in 1946, was the most forceful and eloquent of these labor statesmen. Ruther championed what's been called the politics of productivity, which held that an expanding economy with cooperatively achieved ever increasing production levels could benefit everyone, management, workers, and consumers alike. The 1950 UAW General Motors Treaty of Detroit was the most famous exemplar of that philosophy, a five-year contract introducing cost of living and productivity pay increases, in other words, rewards for increased output, along with good benefits for GM workers, but which also obliged the union to partner with management to ensure efficient and uninterrupted production. As a result, the contract also included a stiff no-strike clause, which required union officials to condemn and curtail any walkouts that took place while the contract was in effect. Moreover, the five-year agreement provided for a relatively small number of stewards and committeemen, those union representatives who are the first responders, so to speak, when workers have disputes with management on the job. The Treaty of Detroit was widely heralded in the press, but the class conscious FE leadership imbued with a Marxist belief that profits spring from the inherently exploitative appropriation of surplus value held a contrary view. FE leaders insisted that a cooperative framework belies the fact that there is only one side for business, its side, and that it operates on the principle of getting as much as it can that can be deterred in its exploitation only by applying economic and political pressure 365 days a year. What did this mean in practice? It meant that FE leaders nurtured their grudge against International Harvester and more specifically the McCormicks who controlled it, calling them out for their greed and not incidentally making regular reference to the Haymarket martyrs and the McCormicks culpability in their deaths. But beyond the tough talk, FE leaders also pursued collective bargaining objectives that were the polar opposite of those contained in the Treaty of Detroit. The FE opposed long contracts, preferring one-year agreements as they saw value in the agitation attendant to negotiations. They opposed cost of living and productivity pay increases, believing that they limited what workers were entitled to. They resisted no strike clauses and embraced a large and aggressive steward body committed to resolving workers' grievances immediately. The vast majority of those grievances centered around management's efforts to get employees to work harder and faster. But FE leaders, national and local, felt no obligation to assist this drive to increase productivity. The FE's combative rank and file centered ideology had a measurable impact within the workplace. In the nine year period from 1946 to 1954, at the dozen or so international harvester plants represented by the FE, 
there were over 1,000 work stoppages. That's an astronomical figure, representing walkout rates during the period that far surpassed those at UAW plants, for example. And just to put things in a contemporary context, in the most recent nine-year period, in, the mo in, this, in this most recent nine-year period, from 2012 to 2020, among the 160 million workers in the entire United States, we had only 131 strikes in total during that entire period. The 30,000 FE members at IH plants were stopping work at least that much each year. And sometimes as in 1950, when they walked out 177 times, much more often. Such conduct made harvester management apoplectic. The company wants good relations with responsible unions, harvester officials intoned in 1947. But the FE's leadership, so Harvester declared, are irresponsible radicals who are more interested in disruption than in labor management peace. Privately, FE leaders may not have disagreed with that assessment. But as far as they were concerned, there was a practical reason for all this disruption. Through it, workers got what they deserved and promptly. As one local FE leader put it, if something happens to a worker today and we walk out, his case will be settled in the morning. Every walkout, every time we walked out, it got results. So the FE's militancy distinguished it in the post-World War II era, but there was another factor that did as well. Farm equipment factories were located mostly in the American heartland, some in Chicago, but others in smaller towns in more rural places. As a result, the FE's membership was about 80% white. Nonetheless, the FE, as a result in large part of the leadership's connection to the Communist Party, maintained a top to bottom commitment to interracial unionism. How was this manifested? We can talk about three things. First, leadership. From its founding, the FE's executive board always included at least one African-American. And from 1946 on, the FE had both a black executive board member and a black vice president. That sort of representation was then unheard of. And um, the uh, Chicago Defender, the influential um, black newspaper, uh, thought, felt so strongly about what um, the FE had done at its 1946 convention when it elected both a black vice president and a black executive board member that they featured it prominently in um, the newspaper. There were unions with far larger percentages of African-American membership then, like the UAW, the steel workers, and the United Electrical Workers who had no blacks at all in their top leadership posts. Next, in terms of union representation, from its founding and as opposed to many other unions like the UAW, the FE championed the right, rights of African-Americans to secure skilled jobs and fought for and won contract terms like plant-wide seniority that were most likely to benefit African-American workers. At an international harvesters plant in Louisville, the FE would seize the opportunity to affirm its commitment to racial equality in especially dramatic and disruptive fashion. And there the FE demonstrated the third essential component of its model of interracial unionism, 
what I call lived solidarity. The belief that continual collective struggle in the workplace against management involving both black and white workers was essential to forging unity and combating racism. In 1946, Harvester opened a plant in Louisville, hoping as so many other companies did to take advantage of the low wage non-union South. Harvester hired some blacks for production jobs, which was then unusual in, in what was then segregated Louisville. The workforce though was about 85% white and many of those white employees, some of whom had only recently left rural Kentucky came into the plant reflecting generations of animosity towards African-Americans. One black worker at the plant who became a leader of the Louisville FE described the workforce this way. We had hillbillies, that's all we had. Farmers, guys who wore overalls, and those kind of guys were racist, I mean real racist. Nonetheless, in its organizing drive at the plant, when it was competing against several other unions, the FE, in, con in contrast to the other unions seeking recognition, made it clear that the union itself would be fully integrated and committed to fighting for blacks as well as whites on the job. Given this message and what is sometimes said today about the intrinsic racism among the deplorables, it was therefore rather astonishing that the FE won the 1947 representation election. Even more remarkably, the FE local then immediately challenged Harvester on the lower wage scale, what was called the Southern Differential, that it planned to introduce in Louisville. After a strike that lasted over 40 days, Harvester relented and raised wages for all workers in the plant. But this wasn't the end of the story, for after that strike, the militancy continued as Harvester's Louisville plant became one of the most walkout prone in the chain. Moreover, the FE continued the very hard work of combating racism in the shop and in the larger community. Civil rights activist Anne Braden, who, had, who worked with the FE in Louisville, indicated that the FE carried out what she called a constant campaign to convince the white workers that only by solidarity of the Negro and white workers could the union be strong. In this slide, we can see one indication of how this played out when in 1949, as the entire workforce at the Louisville plant walked out in protest when Harvester fired two black union leaders there. But um, if you really are interested in this, what I think is really a, a remarkable story of this lived solidarity that the FE practiced in Louisville and the impact it had in that community, I really, you really have to read the book. Um, there are great stories there. And um, to me, among the more moving aspects of the story um, about the FE in Louisville are the personal accounts from white workers who detail their struggles to overcome their own racist heritage and black workers who talk about what such interracial unity meant for them. So, okay, these seem like an impressive set of accomplishments, but they were tenuous ones achieved by the left-wing FE in the period when the Cold War was underway and red baiting attacks on communists were escalating daily. So the FE found itself beset by powerful enemies, including International Harvester, the reactionary press and the government. 
the non-communist affidavit provision of the Taft-Hartley Act caused several FE leaders, including A.J. Martin, the FE's young African-American vice president who had been um, elected in 1946, to resign rather than concur with the act's requirement to denounce the Communist Party. FE leaders, local and national, were harassed by the FBI and local Red Squads. Yet perhaps the FE leadership's most bitter battle was with the labor establishment and especially the UAW's Walter Ruther. Ruther asserted jurisdiction for the UAW over the farm equipment industry and began a series of raids on FE locals, triggering NLRB elections at plants where the FE was already the recognized bargaining agent. The UAW was thus expending considerable resources to organize the already organized, in other words. Remarkably, however, despite the red baiting barrage aimed at the FE by the much bigger and better funded UAW, harvester workers remained doggedly loyal to the FE, rejecting the UAW's advances and voting for the FE time and again. But despite that endorsement from workers, the UAW and the labor establishment moved to cast out those unions deemed to be communist dominated and the FE, along with a dozen or so other unions representing over a million workers were expelled from the CIO in late 1949. At this time, the FE entered into an autonomous affiliation with the United Electrical Workers, at the time, the third largest industrial union and also one of the left-wing unions expelled from the CIO. The fighting on so many fronts took its toll. The battle reached a crescendo in 1952, a year of high drama for the FE. In July, International Harvester announced that it would move its twine mill, a facility that stood next to McCormick Works in Chicago, south to New Orleans. For years, we have heard International Harvester and the millionaire McCormick's boast of their responsibility to their employees and the public, one FE flyer read. The truth is that Harvester's planning all too clearly includes relocation of as many plants as possible to low-wage, sweatshop, non-union, Jim Crow areas. But the FE did more than issue paper protests as African-American Robert Ray, the president of the FE local at the Twine Mill announced, we will put up a physical fight to keep the machinery from being moved and 250 workers, many were black, some of Eastern European descent and many of them women, promptly engaged in a sit down strike. A little over a day after the occupation began, the Chicago Police Department charged in to clear the workers out and outside the plant, a full-scale melee developed as FE members attempted to blockade trucks bound for New Orleans, loaded up with the plant's machinery. My father was actually one of the dozens who were arrested during the twine mill confrontation. But that was merely a dress rehearsal for what would come next. As in August, 1952, the FE began its strike against International Harvester, the subject of the excerpt from my book that I read earlier, um, that was the strike that was going on in that excerpt, which quickly became exceptionally tumultuous. Shortly after the strike began, FE leaders were hauled before the House Un-American Activities Committee, an event the press and harvester management made much of. 
IH kept its plants open during the walkout and made clear its intentions to get rid of the FE once and for all. And given how FE members generally responded, as these shown here in East Moline, Illinois, to those who tried to cross their picket lines, it was no surprise that the strike quickly became violent. It was in the midst of this walkout that the killing of McCormick Works employee, William Foster, took place, who worked at the same plant, I'll stress again, that had been at the center of the Haymarket violence. Harold Ward, also African-American and an employee at McCormick Works, but one who is not a strike breaker, but instead was a local and very important FE leader, was charged with the murder. Now, again, I'm not gonna tell you what happened either in terms of the strike or the very dramatic murder trial, um, or even for the FE in general, though you can probably figure out that it didn't all end well for the FE since the union itself no longer exists, but I'm gonna have to leave some things unsaid um, to get you to read the book. But in terms of what's important in the FE's story today, especially for activists dedicated to reviving the labor movement and thinking about how to organize at places like Amazon. Of course, I speak to that in my book's conclusions, but let me emphasize a few points here. With so much of the labor movement that still seems moribund today, it's appealing to look back to union militancy in previous periods, particularly the Great Depression, for inspiration, and the FE can provide a case in point. But it's become a bit of a truism that after World War II, rank and file based militancy was quickly stifled by an increasingly bureaucratic, cooperatively minded labor leadership that bought in to the politics of productivity. The FE's example, however, makes it quite clear that militant conduct continued for some unions through the 1940s and into the 1950s. At least Fortune Magazine thought so, as in this late 1946 article, when they referred to the FE's president as party lining, class warring Grant Oaks, shown speaking here on May Day at the grave of the Haymarket martyrs. So let's recognize that one need not look too far back or to other countries to find alternative visions of a labor movement animated by a belief in class warfare rather than class collaboration. And that perspective had implications beyond a greater propensity to walk off the job. This was not simply a display of contrariness. All those walkouts at FE plants were grounded in the radical leadership's insistence that workers' interests were served by curtailing, not augmenting, corporate profit-making. That allowed the union to combat management efforts to speed up work and put into action its principle that every worker's grievance represented a scream for justice. It also freed the FE to offer a more aggressive challenge as in the 1952 Twine Mill sit-down to the notion that companies had the right to move their facilities wherever they might make easier money. The labor establishment, however, having hitched its, belief, its wagon to the belief that higher corporate profits would ensure greater prosperity for all was left slack-jawed as jobs were shipped overseas and companies squeezed more and more production out of fewer people. 
making a wasteland of so many working class communities and further brutalizing the on-the-job experiences for those lucky enough to remain employed. My point is that the ideological orientation of a union leadership and not just its toughness matters and has both short-term and long-term consequences. We should not underestimate, however, just how rocky the going has been and will be for those unionists who adhere to the concept of class warfare. My book emphasizes the many difficult choices that faced left-wing union leaders during the Cold War period and how increasingly narrow their path forward became, in part because of the red-baiting assault on them launched by other labor officials. But make no mistake, all CIO unions, even the more conservative ones, were at best only grudgingly accepted for a brief period by the ruthless and cunning captains of American private enterprise. I centered my story about around the deep-rooted grudge between International Harvester and the FE for a reason. I wanted to document just how effectively capital has exercised its will to power and underscore that those capitalists, not other union leaders, have been and remain the real enemy of the working class. Always important to keep in mind, again, with this Amazon struggle at the forefront of our discussion and sort of who's to blame and um, how we um, move forward. Um, I think it's important to keep that in mind. But our class war is not over, it's ongoing, as you all know, and labor has one indispensable, formidable weapon at its disposal. The FE's story and the long struggle that preceded its founding underscores that in order for workers to challenge capital, that core union tenet, solidarity, meaning absolute, all-encompassing, regularly practiced solidarity, is essential. The FE's experience in Louisville demonstrates that even in supremely hostile environments, it is possible to break through racist barriers. To do so, organizers must be unwavering in their commitment to equality while managing to be both relentless and patient with workers. Maintaining solidarity requires a constant campaign, in Ann Braden's words, not an exercise that ceases once a union is established. That's not an easy task by any means, but in Louisville, the FE managed to win over even inveterate racists. And as a result, white and black workers not only walked picket lines together, but developed deep and abiding friendships that served as the FE's source of strength. This was true elsewhere in the FE as well. African-American Frank Mingo, vice president of one of the FE's Chicago locals said that the rank and file loved that union. Solidarity lived and felt this way as a marrow deep sense of class consciousness and communal spirit that overcomes the division sown by capital can have mighty consequences. It has before and by recognizing that we can fight our way past a dismal present and built a just future for working people. Okie doke. That's it for me, at least for the talking part. Thank you so much um, for that enlightening presentation. 
Um, I want to take a moment for us to digest Dr. Gilpin's knowledge and percolate any questions that we may have. Um, so as questions come to you, please um, put them in the chat. I also want to acknowledge that today um, is a rather heavy day. Um, we have a, a lot going on, right? Um, as we mentioned earlier with the um, Chauvin trial uh, verdict and um, how that may um, affect us. It's also Mental Health Awareness Day. So um, if topics have been weighing heavy on you, um, one of my favorite things to do is take a deep breath. And as one of my um, mentors says, breathe in calm, breathe out bullshit. Um, and it's very helpful. And so if we could just all just take a moment um, for that. Um, and also, if you're in the chat, we did have a question about um, where to purchase the book. Um, I linked directly to Haymarket Books. And, and I just put that up too in the, okay, perfect. in the chat. And so if you're just joining us, um, you're encouraged um, to check out Tony Gilpin's book, The Long Deep Grudge. Um, I found it a fascinating read um, and I really, really enjoyed reading it, um, particularly because um, for someone who is relatively new to uh, labor history and not um, just kind of getting um, introduced to the topics of labor history that I find absolutely Pauline aren't covered in school. Um, and I think as we, because we don't have that education in school, there's kind of this disconnect between um, being working class and labor, right? And seeing ourselves as that, not only as a culture, but also kind of having this um, willful, um, I'm not even sure how to say it, but um, like a willful disconnect, a willful resistance to being seen as working class or labor when the definition is if you are not wealthy enough to afford to not work, then you are working class, right? <laughs> um, and so let's see if I can bring up chat. Oops. And so, uh, <clears throat> go ahead, Avery. Well, see, I just wanted to mention something um, and uh, also thank Tony for the wonderful talk and for uh, staying late into the central standard time evening. We really appreciate that. Um, just so everybody knows, we did have some planning to do at the end of this meeting for future labor history talks. So uh, we should try to wrap up by no later than eight so that we can spend maybe 15 minutes uh, on planning. So just to, to have people prepared for that. Okay, great. Thank you for the reminder, Avery. Um, and so a couple of, I'm going to blend a couple of questions, because um, we had a question about um, ways to encourage people to mobilize. Um, 
And I find it um, fascinating, your commentary on union ideologies and militancy versus cooperative, um, because I think the word militancy can scare off a lot of people. And so um, when taking those types of ideologies in, um, in hand, how would you suggest mobilizing a workforce um, without scaring them off? Um, well, I guess I'd, I'd want to know more from you what that means. I mean, one of the things, and, and let, me, let me back up a moment and just um, speak to a couple other things that you said. Um, the, um, and let me emphasize that the best way to get the book is through the publisher, Haymarket Books, because um, both because you avoid Amazon, but it's actually, it's on sale. It's like $15 right now. And so even with the shipping, it's less than what they sell it for on Amazon. So I encourage you to use that link if you're interested in the book. Um, and um, Leslie, I just wanted to speak to what you said about the, sort of the teaching of history. And um, since I am certainly older than you and perhaps the, the, the older than many on, the, on this call, you know, when I was a kid in school in Chicago Public Schools, we didn't get a lot of anything much other than the standard um, great man history. And I think that's been thankfully changed, you know, somewhat in um, in public schools and kids are getting, are, are hearing more black history, women's history, Native American history, Latinx history, et cetera. But what I think often happens is that what you're doing is sort of replacing one set of kind of people who have achieved through individual accomplishment with another set of people who have achieved through individual accomplishment, or so that is the way the narrative is presented. People who struggled and overcame obstacles and achieved something on their own. What I think we learn when we read labor history, as I said at the outset, is that yes, of course, there are those exceptional individuals who um, achieve things um, perhaps on their own, but the way working people as a group have advanced is when they struggle together. That it's not a story of, we're not talking about um, individuals overcoming obstacles. We're talking about cooperative action and how that has changed society for the better, which we're seeing now. I mean, even with the George Floyd protests and how that is um, keeping a spotlight on police um, uh, injustice, and um, we will hope to see some real change as a result of that agitation in the streets. So um, those are the sorts of things that if you read labor history, um, working people's history, you, you sort of see history in a different way. Um, so that's just to speak to your earlier point. In terms of speaking about um, militancy, I mean, that's obviously the way I refer to it in, in this book, talking about these walkouts, for example. But obviously what they were talking about when they were, when they were grappling with these questions in these factories were questions of injustice, unfairness, arbitrary power by management was exactly what we see at Amazon. And so who should, how should we, um, grapple with those, with those complaints? How should we um, respond to them in a way that, that is actually allows us a measure of control over what we do at work? And so I think it, 
doesn't have to be about militancy. It can be about who gets to decide these questions about, you know, we've just gone through this um, horrid pandemic with all these um, egregious examples of workers being endangered on the job. And why um, does management get to make the decisions about the conditions under which people work when they're putting their lives at risk? You know, and we thought at the beginning of this pandemic that maybe things would um, really get changed in that regard since things seem so horrible for workers in meatpacking plants, for example, um, who were, you know, they, where COVID rates were, were out of control and people were um, regularly getting sick and dying. And yet we didn't see enough um, action to really change that for workers. So the militancy is the response. I think the, where you start is what, is what are the issues that we're facing on the job and what are the ways that we can inject fairness into this process? How can we change it so that people up here who don't understand the work we do are making the decisions for us? How can we have our own voices heard in a more effective way? And that requires um, collective um, assertion of power, I think, which is what a union does. And I know some of you are union stewards. So um, as I said, you're kind of, you are the, the first responders when people have problems. And so, you know, directing that anger, that hostility, that frustration away from other workers or, or away from what they might feel inwardly, like I'm somehow failing or, or um, uh, towards um, a collective response, I think is, is, is one of the one of the ways forward. I'm not sure if I quite answered your question, Leslie. And yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with um, your answer. It is kind of a uh, process of acknowledging um, something that we've kind of seen this last year, as you said, with the pandemic, with um, the radical change in our circumstances as workers, right? Um, and some, I, I can kind of um, uh, recognize some of what you're saying because I was able to see that within my own department with the library uh, where we didn't really have a lot of uh, union participation. And the general attitude was, well, it is, you know, things are the way they are, deal with it. Um, and the pandemic came by and we all kind of stood up and we're like, no. And uh, we were able to shut the library down twice. Amazing. And it was like, it was one of those things where like SEIU was like, mm -hmm. wow, right? And we were like, oh, did we do that? <laughs> And we were able to like renegotiate um, some safety protocols and things that really ended up helping us out. Um, but we were almost, um, it's almost like when you have the new puppy and they don't know their own strength <laughs> or they sneeze and they are looking all around the room like they didn't know what, what just happened. It was, that was us at the very beginning where we, you know, we kind of looked and we were like, oh, we have this power, who knew? And it's really changed the attitude within our department. Lots of baby steps to take, but we have that, um, that forward mobility that we didn't have for a really long time. Um, so I, I can recognize uh, the, the attitude change that 
is needed to get that started. Uh, Robin has her hand up. Hi, um, I just wanted to like piggyback on, cause I work in the sheriff's department and food services. So we feed the deputies. We make sure the inmates eat three times a day. You know, we do all those, all the staff, all those who want to eat, that's what we do. So when the pandemic, um, uh, you know, was officially declared a pandemic and everybody knew really what we were up against, um, like me and my coworkers, we were like frozen in fear because we work with inmates mm-hmm. <laughs> inside of a locked jail, you know, and jails across San Diego County. So I was like, well, what do we do? You know, are we going to suffer this for God knows how long? Or are we going to start, you know, circling the wagons <laughs> against management, you know, um, and whatever they decide to throw at us. And sure enough, they tried to throw um, a work schedule at us. That was crazy. Um, on top of the fear of potentially catching a disease that was going to kill us. So I said, not me. <laughs> I said, you guys want to work, you go over there. But as far as for me, if you guys want to come with me, it's time to uh, stand up and stand out um, and take a risk. And um, sure enough, um, uh, they made the announcement about the schedule and I called SEIU Um uh, enlisted them to the case and it got to labor um, management to the command staff of the sheriff's department to our um, personal management in our department and they changed it to where it was worker friendly <laughs> during this pandemic so that we had we, they split our um, department in half so I haven't seen some of my co-workers in, in a year um, just to minimize the numbers in the building and they did everything to try to like minimize our risk so um, you know you got to take a stand sometime, take a risk. And if I can just quickly, bo- both of those stories are terrific stories because they really are about those, you know, small moments that can be so transformative, which is what you see in, in any kind of labor history story. And I mean, in my book and just talking about the particular moments that workers kind of made that leap forward, you know, moving away from fear and uncertainty and sort of individualism into a, a sense of collective action and, and, and having the courage to, to make that leap. And then, and as you said, Leslie, then sort of, you know, when you recognize the power that that gives you, all this, you know, all this amazing change can can happen in a hurry, and it also, but it's it's not just what you achieve, as I, I suspect is true for you too, Robin. It's not just like what you achieve materially; it's what the consciousness of people, how it makes them feel better about their working circumstances, that they're standing up for themselves, like you said, Robin, that you're that you're you know, that you can go to work knowing that you're, um, that you're taking some um, control back um, over what um, is going on. And one, and that's, I think the labor movement, it maybe will, maybe the, the change will be coming. I think that one of the things that I sort of found disappointing about this past year is I do think there has been such an opportunity for unions to step forward more aggressively than they have on these issues of health and safety and scheduling, 
which are so critical and, 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 and literally can be critical right now when we're talking about um, risking people's lives on the job. So to really sort of make that a moral crusade for unions and labor, I think is something that, that needs to happen. And even back in the CIO days when workers were um, joining the farm equipment workers or the UAW or the steel workers, so often, I mean, the sort of, you know, this, in, in, for people who are not in unions, they think that what unions are about are just getting people some more money. But, um, you know, if you look back at those unions or what you are both talking about, it isn't usually money per se that drives people to make that leap to join unions or to stand up in their unions and demand something. It's a sense of injustice. It's, a, it's often things like, demanding schedules that are literally killing people, breaking them down. It's about the arbitrary firings of people or disciplines of people that just strike other workers as unfair. I mean, that's one of the other things that Ann Braden talked about in her work with the Louisville local was that what amazed her was when you would be at a meeting and a white worker would stand up on behalf of a of a black worker and say, you know, what they're doing to that guy just isn't fair. And, so, you know, I think workers really have an innate sense of fairness that they feel is violated so frequently on the job. And if unions can speak to that, can um, kindle that sense of justice that, that, that I think working people carry with them, I think that's one of the ways that um, you can achieve great things. It sounds like you both are doing that. We do try. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so you're, you touched on, I think, uh, another question that we have in our chat from Matt. Um, so based on your research, what tips do you have to nudge radical action in a union? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I had an easy answer to that. You just do A, B, and C. And then, um, I mean, one of the points that I made at the end is I think that it takes more than just kind of thinking in, um, you know, thinking in a combative way. I think, you know, the things that distinguish those, not just the FE, but the other left-wing unions who tried to practice that kind of unionism, which embrace both that sort of um, shop floor militancy, aggressive representation, and also interracial solidarity was that that came from this ideology, um, this Communist Party left-wing ideology that um, first of all, first and foremost, made, you know, continually reinforced their belief that, that capitalist management were the enemy of working people, not, you know, doesn't mean you can't negotiate a contract, but you recognize that the people on the other side of the table are not your friends and they're never gonna be your friends. And so I think as long, you have to maintain, you know, uh, sometimes I tell the story that Ralph Nader, the consumer advocate who was so um, loathed by, um, by the auto companies for his exposure of how unsafe cars were, he talked about how he never, you know, and he obviously was at all kinds of congressional hearings and in all kinds of circumstances where he was in the same room with um, auto executives. And he would never even agree to have a cup of coffee with them. 
because I said, if I do that, I'm probably going to find out that they might be kind of nice guys. You know, we might have things in common. We might, you know, I don't want to know that, you know, now that doesn't mean that, you know, in all circumstances that's possible, but I think this notion that you have to start from just recognizing um, that your job in a union and as union representatives is to always know that they don't have, that management does not have your best interests at heart. Amazon didn't have, that does not have the best interests of its workers at heart, regardless of how polished their propaganda um, to that effect might be. Um, so that's, I think, step number one. Now, again, you have to do that differently in different unions. It works differently in a teacher's union than it might in a industrial um, union. But um, for example, here in Chicago, we have a pretty active and uh, militant teachers union that um, maintains that kind of aggressiveness um, in bargaining. But also, yeah, I would say the belief for you union stewards or committeemen, I mean, you, you really are, and I emphasize this in my book, how essential, how really those, you're the frontline soldiers and your job is, you know, is probably the most important in a union. And so you're um, sort of encouraging workers to, again, pursue those grievances in ways that connect them to other workers rather than, um, isolating them or letting them fester in resentment. Um, that's also a way to sort of move people towards radicalism or, or at least more militant union um, behavior. I should note that, you know, even for these communist party unions, even the FE, you know, as, as um, I'm touting its successes, but it isn't like they got, I wouldn't say that the mass of their rank and file would have identified themselves as radicals or as certainly not as communists by any stretch of the imagination, but they associate, they, they love this union, as they said, and they were willing to participate in the actions that supported the union. So I don't know that they would have self-defined um, as radicals, but they would have self-defined as ardent um, union members. I think that's definitely something that we can build towards here at SEIU. Um, and your comments about not even getting a cup of coffee um, is wonderful. I think it's um, also something that we can work towards. I think there's a lot of um, willing to cooperate with management um, here in our local. And um, it hasn't ever gotten us a better contract in fact. <laughs> yeah. It kind of hinders that process. Um, Drusilla, you have your hand up? Yeah, I kind of wanted to switch to, uh, you know, when she was talking about uh, union stewards, um, you know, a lot of times the, the employees think that we get paid to do what we do. Hmm. And, and they want you to, you know, if you've done something wrong, you're going to be disciplined and if you can you know and I all I try to be honest when I'm representing someone that let them know look what you did was wrong so we can try to work and see if we can maybe uh lighten the uh discipline you know that you don't get fired or anything like that but um the reason why I'm saying that is I'm, I'm look at the police union I don't call that union Hmm. that's not a union and I hate that we have to associate ourselves with that because 
the way they operate, they are the main ones that supports the killing of, of black people by the cops, their unions. So how, how are they able to call this stuff a union? Well, I think a lot of people agree with you in the labor movement and outside the labor movement. And um, again, I'm from Chicago, which has one of the worst police unions, police union leadership, ardent, open, racist Trump supporter who's the president of the um, police union here in Chicago. So it's one of the, it's just one of the worst. And obviously we have a pretty horrid police department that um, uh, the killing of Laquan McDonald um, uh, as the epitome. Of, well, I, I should say it, it's not the epitome because we also had a police department that literally tortured people for um, decades. So it's um, pretty awful here in Chicago and, and the fight to kind of um, redefine police unions or expel them from um, from the AFL-CIO is an ongoing one. And I would, I would agree with you. And again, you know, I didn't like underscore it every single time, but if you look at any kind of labor history, you're not gonna find the police ever um, uh, uh, being on the side of working people, whether they're black working people or white working people, except actually I I should correct myself, Um, earlier in Chicago history, so before Haymarket, and and this is actually kind of true in most urban um, settings. So in the early um, 19th century, um, and, and in the era just kind of after the Civil War, um, the police departments were often populated by people from the neighborhoods that they policed and came from, you know, and so identified with uh, workers that might have been on strike. And it was, it was this period of transition in the 1880s in which people like Cyrus McCormick were saying, wait, this is not the way we want the police department to function. They were hiring their own Pinkerton guards to do the work that they wanted the police, the city police departments to, to um, undertake. So, so actually there's this big transition in police history towards, you know, the professionalization of police and moving them away from like these local identities um, that transforms them from, from people who thought their job was actually to protect their neighbors and people who looked like them into these professionals whose um, job it became to protect the interests of capital. So, and now we see that just, you know, to the, to the, you know, um, extreme degree that um, we are seeing it these days with police routinely killing people. But um, certainly in um, the story I tell, the police um, are actively repressing, oppressing um, working people of all sorts in Chicago and the Memorial Day massacre in the 1930s. You had the police, Chicago Police Department, you know, shooting striking workers in the back as they try to escape, you know, so we have a long and really nasty history of that here, but I don't want to be, make it a contest because I know there are bad police departments across the country. Um, so I, know, I, I agree with like you. to associate because we help people. We mm-hmm. unions, you're supposed to help one another, not right. save somebody's job because they kill somebody. I mean, it's, I don't like to be compared. I hate when they say the police union because I'd be like, oh, I cringe because that's not what we are about. And do you find that that's a problem for you in when you're like talking to other people about unions? Do they say, well, I mean, do they often bring up police unions? Like, the, yep. that, so, so, you, so that really is like an, 
it's an organizing problem then for you too. Then yes, is that what you're saying? Yeah. That and and they say, well, uh, when some a cop gets away, well, it was your union. You know, people that's not involved in unions, mm-hmm. they say, well, it was the union that saved them. You uh, know, and I'm like, but that's not the same. We don't do that. That's not what we do. Yeah, I just don't even want to be associated with them. Yeah, it's very hard. Um, and actually in labor notes, um, I just, in the publication labor notes, I just wrote a, just kind of a historical reflection about what happened at Amazon. And I mean, one of the problems that all union supporters face is being painted with the same broad brush as people look at police unions, as they look at corruption scandals that engulf another union like um, the UAW recently. So you don't have to, you, you are not even in that union or you're not in the police union. And yet people, you know, just associate unions, you know, one union does a bad thing or police unions that we don't, should really be like professional organizations like the American Medical Association or something, not unions. Um, right. And, you know, but people, and, you know, and that doesn't, it somehow or another doesn't work the same way for um, employers. You know, if employers do something horrible, get sent to jail for polluting this or for, for foreclosure crises or whatever, it doesn't make everybody just associate all businessmen with the same um, bad behavior. So it's, it's, a, it's really hard to overcome that kind of um, general feeling, but that's part of what obviously what... Um, uh, management, what capitalists, what, what employers try to do. Because um, I'm sure that at Amazon, they were bringing up all kinds of under the table things about police unions or union corruption scandals. And you don't want your dues to go um, to, you don't want to have to waste your money on, on union dues when look what it is, look at the way they behave. So um, that's a big, I don't have an answer to that one, but it's a really big problem. Kind of segues into um, uh, one of um, my questions is with the changing attitude um, from our previous president to this one and um, unlikely uprisings of union activism in places like Alabama, um, contrasting with the almost constant mention of police unions in the news. Um, what do you uh, see in the future for unions? Well, <laughs> that, that is a big question. And, um, you know, it depends on the moment. And again, I mean, it, I think it's a, um, it's part of the reason I keep directing people to read labor histories. There's a lot that's um, grim, depressing, unsettling um, in labor history, just like there is in the present. If you're looking at what's going on with unions, if you look at what just happened with Amazon, um, that can be, uh, make you pretty pessimistic. What um, you recognize when you read labor history is that, is what August Spies said, right? It, there's this subterranean fire that, um, people can't put out. And so that, that, that people up here can't put out, um, that the struggle is always continuing. And 
I tell this story in the book about, I mentioned very briefly that International Harvester had introduced company unions in 1919. So I tell the story of the company unions in the book. And in particular, I focus on a man who, about whom I know almost nothing named John Becker, who the only reason I know anything about him is because the minutes for the McCormick Works Works Council still exist. So um, this fellow named John, and the, of course the company unions were created just entirely as a sham by International Harvester to forestall real organizing to, you know, just like companies do all the time. We have this, we will listen to your problems. We'll, you know, we'll have meetings. We'll have, you know, you can tell us what's on your mind and we'll deal with it. So they had these company unions and this fellow John Becker gets elected as um, one of the representatives to this company union at McCormick Works. And, uh, and, and oh, and there are all these requirements too that were supposed to ensure that the people who were elected were just the kind of people that management would want. They had to, there was an age limit. They had to be citizens. They had to, they had to have worked there for X number of years. But nonetheless, John Becker gets elected. And the first thing he does when he um, shows up at the, and the meetings before he's elected are like the dullest things you could ever imagine. And every, everything the management says, the workers there just say yes. So this guy shows up, gets elected, immediately demands a wage increase and says, you know, it's absolutely ridiculous that you're paying us this. And, you know, and it's clear that the, that the harvester management is really taken aback. But because he does this, other workers start speaking up the meeting and saying, you know, yes, you know, <laughs> I can't live on the salary that I'm making. And you just posted record profits. And I don't believe you when you say that you don't have enough money. And it's kind of this extraordinary moment. And and ultimately he's probably, he disappears from the record. So he's probably fired or, you know, there's no way of knowing because I can't find anything else about him. But he's like one of those heroes to me who we don't, um, you know, who, who are get mostly lost to history. What he did in the 1920s would have resonance that carried through into those that what becomes the big explosion of CIO organizing that leads to like the farm equipment workers. The agitation that he, um, the fact that he exposed these company unions as the, um, as again, the pretext that they were, that once he raised this idea of a wage increase and the management just not only said, no, like we're not even gonna talk about it, you know, then everybody else said, but wait, I thought that's what you were here. I thought you were supposed to, we were supposed to have give and take. And, you know, and so um, that's a long way of getting back to the point that reading history is one way to keep invigorated because you recognize that all the things that you're doing now that may seem sometimes so frustrating, so futile, um, or maybe you win a little victory, but it doesn't seem like it's big enough. You have, you know, you, you can't know how that's going to affect people further down, or maybe in a, you know, all of a sudden there'll be this moment of this huge leap forward, like we had in the 1930s, that nobody was predicting, you know, only a few years before. No one in the late 1920s was, could have possibly told you that we were going to have this huge explosion of activism and union growth. So um, that's, encouraging and that's why history is important. I don't have, a, but it doesn't give you a blueprint. It isn't like if you go back and read this history and then you do exactly the same thing, it'll all turn out the same way, but it does instruct you that collective action is what 
uh, moves people forward and that and yeah, it, I do really believe that it is like those two steps forward and a step back sort of thing. Um, so I don't know exactly what's going to, I mean, the, you can, the labor notes thing kind of, you know, has some optimistic points and some pessimistic points. So, and maybe all of you have a better sense. You are out there doing union work every day. So you probably have in your own um, corner of the world, a sense of what kind of progress um, you're making or not making and, and what it might take to, to really um, move things forward. Wait, I'm not. There we are. Um, thank you. Um, I did drop that labor notes uh, link in the chat for anybody who wants to do some more extended reading. Um, and then that's short one though. That's a little short reading. <laughs> ah, well. <laughs> um, and then uh, Robert, you will be our last question for the night. Hey everybody. Um, I just wanted to make a quick comment here and then um, one that I agree completely with Drusilla. I mean, police unions are thoroughly reactionary organizations. You know, they don't just protect killer cops. They, they, they buy off politicians to make sure that not even the most minimal reforms happen within police departments. Uh, just a, a, a quick note, if, if people caught this story, um, you know, about that African-American, um, Buffalo police officer who tried to stop her partner from choking uh, a white, he was a white cop, from choking a, uh, a handcuffed man in 2006. I don't know if people heard this story just the other day. Or, um, she tried to stop him. He punched her in the face and then she filed a complaint. And, um, she, you know, she basically did what we wish would have happened with George Floyd and many others. Um, and she, she got punched in the face. She filed a complaint. They turned it on her. The, guess who the police union did not, did not uh, protect, right? She got fired just a month before her pension would have, her maximum pension would have kicked in. She lost her pension. She, you know, she was fired. And, um, and she basically just now a New York court finally vindicated her, gave her back pay, her pension and all this other stuff 15 years later for doing exactly what we wish, you know, would happen more often. And, um, you know, I, so I just want to bring that up in that context, because this is an incredible, you know, uh, this was an incredibly that this actually happened, um, but it took 15 years. And uh, it's an interesting story giving the context. Um, Given the context, um, well, I mean, I know I'm the last speaker, so I'm just going to say this. Um, Tony, amazing to have you here. Uh, you've written my favorite labor history book that I've ever read. I've read quite oh a few. Oh, my gosh. And, and honestly, I, I feel like, um, you know, most of the time, books that cover such a large swath, I, I struggle with because they're not always written, well, certainly as masterfully as yours, which for folks that haven't read this, I mean, it reads like a novel. You, you get relationships between people. You learn, you learn about people in a way that it sticks in your brain in ways that I've struggled with other books. You know, I've tended to like, you know, shorter one, you know, something like Teamster Rebellion. This is a classic and a great book. It covers one, you know, monumental strike in 1934 in Minneapolis among, among Teamsters. But sometimes when you try to put so much in it, um, it can be hard to digest. But I, I got to say, with this book, um, you've managed to hit on 
so many, uh, like all of the key lessons somehow of the labor movement, you know, you, like you just brought up company unions, you know, you, we talk about just, you know, the, the through line is rank and file struggle solidarity. I mean, that story about organizing Louisville, it was just blew me away because it's one I hadn't heard about, you know, I've read about other multi racial organizing amongst, you know, con communists in Harlem and hammer and hoe in the South mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But that story I had never heard. And it, just to read through it and just every step of the way, such an incredible story. And really the whole book reads that way. And I just want to thank you for writing it and for, and, you know, and for being here to, you know, talk to some of us fans here who really just enjoyed that book. And I know not everybody here has read it. And so I just encourage everybody else to check it out as well. Thank you so much, Tony. Oh my gosh, you totally have made my, I don't know, year, I think. <laughs> With that, that, I, that is just really, really great to hear. I really, you know, I took to heart what you said um, about trying to, I, you know, a lot of labor history, I appreciate what's the information that's in it, but it's not always the easiest to read. And you're, and, and I really did want this to, to be something that could kind of um, be read by people who didn't, had never read a single labor history book before and would 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 kind of cover a lot of of uh, topics that I think people could then they might want to go off and read more about but um but I appreciate it and I love the stories and the stories kind of sometimes amazing you know kind of coincidences or things that I myself learned about um people like Oscar Brown Jr., the jazz musician who I bring in at the end of the story, like things like that, just kind of, I just found that out as I was reading. And so they're wonderful stories, and I, but, I, but what a wonderful thing for you to, to say. And I'm just thrilled to, to have been here. And let me just go back to your police union point. You know, this is something that the labor movement has to tackle. And obviously the fact that the AFL-CIO or, or, or the bigger labor bodies are keeping away from this or keeping this at arm's length is because of the power that those, those police unions do have, as you said. And, or we should figure out another word to use for them because as you say, to call them unions is kind of um, uh, disparages other unions. So, um, uh, but I think within your own organizations and so many of you raised that tonight and I, I don't think it's just because um, we're here on the eve of the of the, the verdict um, uh, in the George Floyd um, killing um, I think you know that's something that just is resonating with people everywhere police departments are seemingly you know pretty awful everywhere and and this is, this is dragging down, as Drusilla said, it's dragging down other union efforts. And um, so something has to be done about this. And I, you know, I mean, what you're talking about in Buffalo is awful. I mean, I can't tell you how terrible it is. Chicago every day, they're saying something awful, but um, you know, and they, but they still have an, an enormous amount of power here in Chicago in terms of um, their control. And, uh, they're affecting, you know, Lori Lightfoot was elected supposedly to rein them in and, and that's not happening. So, um, uh, but at any rate, but I really appreciate uh, what you just said about my book. I'm going to sleep well tonight thinking of, of that and, um, and please keep in touch with me. And if you, you know, want me to come back and talk some more or want to just chat yourself with me, I'm happy to do that. Awesome. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. We did have one last question that I didn't uh -huh. to overlook. Um, 
piggybacking off of Bob's great praise that I really can't top. Um, we did have a question of whether or not you will um, sell the rights to your book to be made into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting. For, I'm waiting for that phone call for someone to um, to want to make a, a movie out of it. I think it. I, I honestly think. I mean, there's. You know, I really think that actually one could make sort of a movie out of it. It's got. It's there's so many great stories that um, that and 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 again like it's both the management side and the labor side. So I have all these stories about workers, but they're also this McCormick family, for those of you who hadn't re haven't read the book, is one of these sort of typically eccentric, crazy, rich families with all these, like any one of their stories. I mean, I mentioned that Fowler McCormick is the grandson of both Cyrus McCormick the first and John D. Rockefeller, the richest man who's ever lived. So you're talking about these enormous fortunes that came together. And, and then you've got like, but just all these kooky behaviors, you know, the kind of like the kind of thing that would, would make for a screwball comedy, um, but that, that are enabled because they're so, you know, jaw-droppingly, astonishingly wealthy. I know we think Jeff Bezos is wealthy now. But, you know, the kind of, the, there, there were no taxes back then, you know, there were no hindrances on what they could do with their money. So, um, you know, the kind of wealth we're talking about then makes for a good story. So, so it, you know, it could be a, you know, better version of Downton Abbey or something with actual worker, with real worker stories, you know, if, if somebody wanted to do it. So I'm still waiting for the phone call. Well, here's hoping it happens. Um, yeah. I was first in line to watch. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, spending so much time with us um, as late as it is in Chicago. I've deeply enjoyed this discussion. Um, I'm glad that we had a lively crowd tonight. Um, here's to your next book. Okay. And um, please, from all of us, pet that puppy years <laughs> i can go i can go bring him in now if you want me to go get him. all right just wait i'll bring get the puppy puppies make everything better <laughs> <laughs>